0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Grimcast. As we near the end of season one, we want to reshare the first podcast episode we recorded.
1: This episode is with the capital G-R-I-M-M himself. It's David Gentoli. So before we get to the end, let's take it back to the beginning. Enjoy.
2: The wolf thought to himself, what a tender young creature, what a nice plump mouthful.
1: This is
0: The Grimcast. The Grimcast.
1: Grimcast. I'm Claire Coffee. I'm Bitsy Tulloch. And I'm Brie Turner. We were on the NBC hit TV show Grimm together and are still friends in
0: real life. Join us as we rewatch all of the episodes of Grimm and share the juicy behind-the-scenes secrets. Each week we will talk about an episode
2: of the show and bring on some special guests.
1: So whether you watched the show while it was on the air or are watching it for the first time right now, join us here every week to talk about all things Grimm. This is The The Grimmcast. GrimmCast. Hey, everybody, we are so excited to be talking about Grimm today with the Grimm himself, David Gentoli. We're going
0: to take you through the entire series starting today with the pilot episode. This episode was written by David Greenwald and Jim Kauf with a story by Stephen Carpenter, and it was directed by Mark Buckland. It first aired Friday, October 28th, 2011.
2: It's based on Little Red Riding Hood, which, if you can listen for it, they flipped the script and said the little girl was going to her grandfather's house. Did anyone notice that? Let's
1: bring David on. Hi, David. Oh, my God, David. Hi. (laughs) Oh, my God, David.
2: (laughs) Oh, my
3: goodness. Hi, everybody. This is incredible.
2: So nice to see that handsome face.
3: Oh, it's aging. It's aging. I'll take it. You're
2: looking good.
3: Thank you. You all look wonderful as always.
2: So you're in the same house in two different rooms. Yep. That's nice.
3: It works for us. And, you know, (laughs) that's between us and our God. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that's our choice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so Deej, did you happen to rewatch this pilot or are you just going to go back into the memory banks?
3: I am going into the memory banks because I cannot do that to myself.
2: <laughs> okay. Let us remind you of a few key elements that are oh, so boy. juicy. Uh, okay. One is just our favorite, the birth of the Lego hair on
3: Nick Burkhardt. <laughs> oh, <cart>. goodness God. <laughs> it was a haircut made by committee, you know, and, <laughs> They say, a camel is a horse made by committee. That was the hair. And I was part of that committee. (laughs) Who
1: says that? I'd never heard of that before. A camel is a horse made by committee. That's (laughs) really fun. Okay, well, before we get
2: into
0: the Burkhart aesthetic, we want David to read... Synopsis. Hey, babe, we're going to have you do your sexiest voice and read it.
3: Oh, my goodness. Do I get more than one take? No. Okay. After the mysterious, brutal attack of a local college co-ed, Portland homicide detective Nick Burkhart discovers he is a descendant of an elite line of criminal profilers known as Grimm's. Grimm. Charged with keeping balance between humanity and the mythological creatures of the world. As he tries to hide the dangers of his newfound calling from his fiancée, Juliet Silverton, and his partner, Hank Griffin, he becomes ever more entrenched in the ancient rivalries and alliances of the Grim world. With help from his reluctant confidant, Monroe, a reformed Grim creature himself... Nick must navigate through the forces of a larger-than-life mythology. Grim. Shoot. Wow.
2: Guys, that sounds like a good show.
3: <laughs> I want to be in that show for six I'll, years.
2: I want to be on that show and make 123 episodes.
1: <laughs> David, will you walk us through, when you first read the scripts, the audition process, and how all of that felt to you versus what it became and what it was like to shoot?
3: Yeah, I'd happily do that. I was not exactly on any type of sure footing as an actor at this point. I was working here and there, but like you wouldn't put your money on me with any kind of guaranteed return at that point.
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the real world put their money on you.
3: Well, certainly road rules did, Brie. Please do your homework. Oh, road rules. <laughs> uh, it's, yes. So I was on road rules in 2000 and possibly one, possibly two. That was a thing that was fun and different. And then there were years of Just partying in the Midwest, thinking I had won a car and I sold it. I'm like, I'm rich. That'll last forever. It didn't. And so I moved to LA in 2005. And this is like, I was grinding for five, six years, and then the pilot of Grimm came around. I was auditioning for a ton of things.
0: But you had done a couple pilots before that. You had already been, like, booking series regulars just on shows that hadn't necessarily gone to series. Correct.
3: And that is my wife, my beautiful wife and agent, (laughs) Bitsy (laughs) Tullick.
0: She
3: is a force for good, especially in my life. Thank you, darling.
2: She's there for the positive affirmations. I mean, this Mm -hmm. sounds like a pretty— Great life. I'm already cursing. I said, don't curse, Bree. Don't curse. The kids are listening. I'm already cursing.
3: Yeah, no, beep it out. People like beeps because they don't have to <laughs> hear it, but they know that we got a little raunchy.
2: Rosalie curses, kids.
3: <laughs> but I remember coaching for this and feeling the worst that I have ever felt in my life. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, absolute despair. I was with my friend Christine Estabrook, who is this wonderful actress who would kind of help me run things. And I almost at least internally, like fell apart in her apartment and probably didn't show it because that's how I was raised, at least in front of people who are not my wife. But I was just like, what am I doing? And then I went in for the audition and I had just worked with Todd and Sean and Mark Buckland that year. I worked with Sean and Todd on the second episode of Hot in Cleveland, where I got to meet the wonderful, late, sadly, great Betty White. Oh my God. Oh, I know. I know. Anyhow, I- Did this reading and I saw that, you know how it goes. You're all actors. Like back in the days where you auditioned in a room, they were happy and it looked like I was like solving some type of problem for them. (laughs) And Mark Buckland was happy and they wanted me to do it again and again. And then, you know, you test for it and then I couldn't believe it. I remember where I was when I got the phone call. I was driving south out of the NBC studios on Barham and I was about to take a left onto Ventura, and I almost plowed into like just a sushi, some, like, <laughs> roadside sushi place. It was a life-changing uh, moment. And it indeed did change my life.
1: Was the decision that fast? So were you leaving the network test and they called you right there?
3: Someone told me once, it's a slow no and a quick yes. And that sometimes is really, yes, it was wow. an immediate yes.
0: I would say that's usually true. That is, yeah. It's usually yeah.
3: true. Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Again, as your publicist, I also do want to point out, which I believe I already mentioned. I... Wife and publicist and manager and agent. <laughs> there was, and I won't name names, but there were a couple actors. One in particular, who's a very, very big, famous TV star, who really, really wanted that role, who was fighting for the role, but David got the role. <laughs> David I got the role. I was good enough
3: and cheaper than that guy, is how I but hear. But you that. know
0: what,
2: David? I mean, I just rewatched the pilot. This morning, actually, <clears throat> real professional and um, nice. I've said this to you a dozen times. I'm going to say it again: is that all that life in you is why it worked because. You're like the everyman. You're the humble everyman. The
1: exceedingly good-looking everyman. Yeah,
2: just like the, like, devastatingly handsome, jaw-chiseled, great hair. Everyman, (laughs) you know? Relatable.
3: I'm going to need that last 15 seconds on a loop. Can anybody in the studio? Um.
2: No, but your spirit is why it was just, you know, nothing was ever so precious in that pilot.
3: Well, listen, thank you for saying that. I can't watch the pilot. I feel like, you know, I have grown a lot as an actor.
0: It's really good. You should not be afraid. It's so good. That's funny, because one of our questions for you was like, we've all recently watched the pilot episode. When was the last time you did? Was it in 2011 when we premiered in October of 2011?
3: I'm sure that that was it. Yeah. Yeah, I had to watch that many times. I say had to. It was a very good pilot, but it's like pledging a sorority in an 80s movie. (laughs)
2: Oh my God. The phones alone. Like Hank like grows and like grabs the phone off the bedside table. I'm like, what is that relic that he's grabbing?
1: <laughs> like I don't even know what that is. The iPod. Like you can't get an
2: iPod. <laughs> you can't anymore. even. My I actually tried to get yeah. my daughter an
1: iPod. I wish they made those things.
3: Is that like a European plug <laughs> they're using? What is that? Where are we?
1: David, when you shot the pilot, did you get any glimpse of, oh my gosh, I am going to be working 17 hours a day every day of my life for the next six years? Like, did you have any concept of, I guess, the enormity of your practical responsibility when it came Mm. to the show? Good question.
3: That's a good question, Claire. And I was so new and just not thinking that far ahead that I viewed it as an opportunity. I understood that a lot was going to be, attention was going to be on me, but I didn't think ahead to, oh, I'm going to be working nonstop for several years and even have the distance to consider that or dread that or get excited for that. It was really one, one step at a time. As you guys know, like, it's a pilot, and then you don't know if you're going to get picked up. And then you get picked up to series, and you're elated. And I remember being with Silas at Ye Rustic Inn <laughs> when it got picked up.
2: I remember <sighs> the Ye Rustic
3: Inn. Yeah, yeah. I love it. With that. that, like, old font, you know, Ye Rustic Inn. It came, like, pre-covered in dust. Like, they're just like, <laughs> here, we are just we'll do this for you. And you're elated about that, and then you film, and then you get the back nine, and that's a big deal. And then you get picked up again, and then suddenly you're realizing, oh, wait this might be my life for a long time. And I think in season three, Russell and I kind of had a realization that was jarring. We were grateful always. And also like, boy, how are we going to keep this up? And, you know, whatever we did, the crew did even more of. So I should certainly say. I that.
0: remember that's the first time I heard you say, I'm aging like a wartime president. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> and that always really stuck with you. Yeah. Now your newest one is, I'm aging like an avocado. <laughs> yeah.
3: um, it's even beyond that. Now I just go to the past tense. I aged.
0: Uh, i think david you know
1: everybody knows how you came across and kind of what a instant star you were on this show but i could not believe how you were able to keep it together on set and the way that you were so generous of your time with everybody and kind of like the ultimate number one because it does it trickles down from the top and also just so present yeah to just instinctively know all of that know how to do
2: all of that but your north star of like connecting with people. I mean, David's one of the few people that actually calls me on my phone and I always answer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm sorry, Brie.
2: <laughs> no, it is the best part about you because you really are building connections with people and that was always, you know, your north star on set. You were there for the experience and You know, we all were, and it was an environment that was supported for all that. But it really did start a lot with you, though, Deej.
3: Well, you're very kind for saying that. And another way of putting that liking connection with people is just say, David, you're very needy. So (laughs) my wife, I'm certain, can testify. And uh, anyhow, listen, that is very true. And in a sense, I do love connecting with people. And I think you kind of come out of the womb a certain way. And all you can do after that is kind of sweep the ice. Like, I was always that way. But as I've grown as just a person, something I had to learn on Grimm was how to maintain my energy, mm-hmm. not say yes to everything, know what's important for the show. I always wanted to do what was important for the show, but I didn't know what was very extracurricular that was going to take a lot of energy for me that wasn't really going to. Provide a lot of juice.
0: 5 a.m. radio tours. <clears throat> That's what I was yeah, exactly. just going to say. Can you exactly. get up at 5 a.m. and do a radio tour? The 5 a.m. radio tours right before you have to go to work for 17 oh my hours. God. Oh,
3: I was so happy yeah. when you ladies started saying yes to that. Or yeah, Because <laughs> you could bring so much more life. I was weak into Bernie's for me after about season three. I was like hoisted up by you.
2: Claire and I had a lot of radio tours together. Yeah. Yeah. We were the suckers. Number six and seven were just like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. No, it
1: was really like, oh, really? You're going to give it? You want me to do something? Oh, it's this. Oh, um, Thank you okay. so much. I'll be there at four.
3: Um, that's silly. This was, I'll be there early. This was an ensemble show. It was called Grimm, but I think they saw that this wasn't an ensemble show completely.
2: Except that I worked three days a week, and you
0: worked <laughs> 10. And that yeah. <laughs> you did not have a day off until, like, the end of season three.
3: Totally. Uh, until Obama's second term. So... <laughs> but i have gone back and watched some of the later episodes and most recently i watched because i really like me i watched the one that i directed (laughs) and uh, (laughs) god i love me will you
1: remind everybody which one that was
3: i was given the wonderful opportunity to direct in season six and it was episode three of season six called oh captain my captain and by the way coffee you had a really hard job in that one And you were wonderfully comedic. You had a scene with Silas in particular.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the closet stuff. Oh, that was the closet. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, now I remember. Oh,
3: my God.
2: That's Claire's farce that's just waiting to come out and wants to be seen.
3: But everybody was wonderful. You and Sasha had the hardest job, and you guys were both outstanding.
1: To be able to get to six seasons on a show, it did feel like you could swing a little uh, further. Yeah. Swing past the fences.
3: I will say I was so nervous to direct that. And I think the Fitbit was like a thing back then. <laughs> but I was like pacing in downtown Portland, thinking about the day I was going to have to say action. And I was so nervous. I put on like 21,000 steps, just pacing and nervousness. <laughs> yeah.
2: I can't even imagine the stress.
3: I was very nervous. But Bitsy, I remember you really were a grounding force for me in that you are like, Gentoli this nervousness is you being beyond prepared. You've got this. That's so smart. You looked into my eyes. You slapped me really hard in the face. I said, what was that for? I did not. And you said something else. And <laughs> No, but you, you kind of slapped some sense into me. But
0: not literally. I just want to clarify no, for no. all of our and listeners.
3: And she did not physically abuse me, if that's what we really mean. <laughs> To talk on. But uh, I was nervous to direct you because you're a wonderful actor and my wife, which is even more fraught.
0: Well, you guys weren't married then. Were you engaged? No, we weren't even engaged then.
3: Well, I don't think. We were deep. Maybe we we were were pretty deep. We were deep enough. I think we were sharing the same address. So I think that's fair.
0: As far as casting, you were cast first and then Russell and I were second. Do you have any fun uh, stories from the chemistry reads? Did you audition with Reggie too?
3: It was the coolest thing. I did get a bit of behind the curtain look at the casting process for the first time. I did chemistry read with people. I remember the first time I saw Hornsby. For those of you at home or in your cars or whatever, when you're an actor, you have to sometimes bring like a change of clothing. Like, bring this look, bring this look. So we were on the NBC lot and you're not necessarily familiar with all these weird offices you have to find. So I see this very handsome actor man carrying like a wardrobe behind his back. Such a pro like, consonant. <laughs> He's still yeah. looking sexy yeah. and confident, but no idea where the hell he is. And I'm like, "Hey, are you Russell?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah." Like, what do you want from me, little kid? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, "Hey, I'm the guy you're reading with." He's like, "Excuse me." I'm like, "I'm the guy. I'm Nick Burkhardt." He's like, "Oh!" You know, like we broke out for a second, and then we collectively navigated our way to like Suite D five, whatever building M. In NBC.
0: Oh man, that's cute. So you met him for the first time at studio test.
3: (laughs) Pre studio test, yeah. Finding the room.
0: Did you help him pick out his outfit?
3: (laughs) I didn't. I didn't. I said, go with the home jersey.
0: Did you introduce yourself to anyone else who was auditioning for Hank Griffin? Or you just kind of had a feeling it was Russell?
3: Uh, I didn't. Because
0: there were other guys there. That was the first day I tested, too.
3: Yeah, there were a lot of other guys, all of whom were pretty damn talented. I believe Reggie Lee came in for the part of Hank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he did. This is a testament to bringing your own brand. Like, people loved him so much that they knew that he wasn't right for this role. I believe Wu was literally created after seeing him audition for Hank. And he was phenomenal. And he did the woo.
2: Yeah, I think that's like not the first time that's happened for Reggie. No way. Because when you're as good as Reggie, he just makes everyone better around him all the time without any fuss. This stable, quiet, beautiful talent, like in a space. Even just rewatching when he bumps into you, like boom, like there's woo, you know?
3: 100%. The cool thing was, from my point of view of being cast first, I got to watch Reggie get cast, Russell get cast, Elizabeth Bitsy, you get cast, which was phenomenal. And I think they wrote the part for Silas. I believe that writers had known Silas from a previous project. I didn't get to see Sasha. But Brie and Claire, you guys came in and brought such a fresh energy. And there were just so many ways it could have gone wrong. Clearly, we should trust the casting process because it went so right.
2: It's true. That's where the, you know, for anyone who's an actor, wants to be an actor, like, it really isn't personal, you know? I mean, you got to, like, show up. But at the end of the day, when they're, when you're down to that phase of casting, it's just, it's intangible right. elements.
0: So, David, going back to the pilot episode, what were some of your strongest memories from filming the pilot?
3: I remember thinking, boy, it hasn't stopped raining. I wonder if it ever will. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being in the Hotel the Nines in downtown Portland, thinking this is like the nicest hotel I've ever been in. And it was like 4 p.m. And I was just waking up because God knows how long we shot that night. And there was like a single beam of light just beautifully entering the room. And I remember without trying to be precious about it, just reaching my hand out into the beam of light (laughs) because I hadn't seen the sun for so long. And then I opened the curtains and people in Portland were all standing in Pioneer Square, just like looking up like sunflowers at the sun. I remember that.
0: <laughs> like sunflowers. What
2: month did you guys shoot that pilot?
3: March. March. Oh, so it was super the rain. rainy. We started in
0: mid-March and wrapped in mid-April.
3: And it was a particularly rainy season. Yeah.
2: That makes sense because it was so green in that pilot, which is not enhanced. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah. It's
3: California's Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was insanely verdant and it was clearly a great town. And I was excited to be working there. And I was like, this is a lot of rain. I also remember <laughs> thinking, boy, am I in a rainforest? Is this <laughs> technically like a temperate rain Like, And if I were to see a hobgoblin run around in real life, it certainly would be in this forest that we're using to film Grimm. So I thought it was all kind of coming together pretty nicely.
1: Yeah. Do you remember at the hotel, the sound of Pioneer Square late at night, the sort of cacophony of screams and moans <laughs> that would happen? And I remember being in the hotel just like from... The teenagers or whoever yeah, was, you know, lot the action
2: in that Pioneer
3: Square. Yeah,
1: doing skateboards and drugs and things. And I remember the feeling like, ooh, this is
0: very spooky.
3: Yeah, it sounded like my fraternity at like 3 a.m. on a Saturday. Just like people would enter the house and like announce, Rrr! like scream, <laughs> like throw a chair. Because I don't know, a lot of weird masculinity not getting answered to. And so, yeah, it reminded me of that. Just howls. Howls, yeah.
1: Okay, so David, you have the first big fight scene with Aunt Marie and the Reaper where you're kind of coming to terms with what's happening to you. Had you done many stunts before?
3: I mean, I said I could do everything. And then I met with a moment of actually having to do it. No, I had not done any stunt that lasted longer than, you know, a moment like a oh, actor goes down. This was my first choreographed fight scene. I remember it being extraordinarily cold. And I believe I was 30 at that time and feeling like my first pain that I thought was just kind of this novel one-off pain that was really just like the first of a series of endless pains. Backaches. Backaches, knee. I thought it was like, oh, it's a fluke. A fluke gray hair. No, it was just the (laughs) vanguard of a trend. I remember that fight, and I remember working with Kate Burton, thinking— Boy, I am learning from her right now.
2: Man, were we so lucky to get her on our, you know, that really grounded that character.
3: Yes, she added gravity to her. And I think it helped legitimize us as a real thing. I mean, Russell Hornsby and I were supposedly the one and two on the show. And we weren't like even in the poster for season one, barely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, who But dress- you know
2: what? I actually think being the person that came in a little later, I think these were heavy elements of cool. It intrigued me. That poster, the fact that there was no real actor on the poster, you know,
0: it
3: was about
2: the story and it was really cool.
3: It was very cool. I
0: love that poster,
2: you know, but also just the dynamic between you and Kate, it just really grounded the fantasy component and that fight scene, you know, I mean, it was like scary and relatable. Like you kind of forgot that there was a creature involved.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think... You know, David Greenwalt and Jim Kauf, the writers of the show, they know genre very well. And because it can, you know, you're writing new rules, grounding it immediately with family, like blood.
1: Such a good point.
3: It keeps it from flying off the rails. Mm-hmm. You know, all the best shows have an element of family, even if it isn't an actual family. And that's what people understand, because we're all human beings. Yeah, that's a good point. And... I think that they brought these wonderful actors in with Elizabeth Antonio, and Kate Burton as my mother and my aunts. And that grounded this thing greatly.
1: Did David and Jim give you, what kind of guidance did they give you or any sort of, here's what we're thinking about the character, or did they kind of let you build?
3: (laughs) I think David and Jim, who are the creators of the show, you know, I knew I really liked them. I didn't know quite how rare they were as showrunners (laughs) until, yeah, yeah, they were not very precious about it. They pretty much let the actors do the acting and, you know, television is a writer's medium and they wrote the words. That's as much control as you really need. And they let us do us. I remember the Cow family just wants to bring everybody in and they didn't have a car. They had like a 10 passenger van (laughs) for their family and- they invited all the actors in during the pilot into this van. We were going to drive around Oregon and see Mount Hood and Multnomah Falls. And I am peppering poor Greeny with questions about my character. And I'm like, so I think this. I remember that. This and this and this and this and this. Yeah. And have all these ideas. I'm like, what do you think? He's like, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's, he's going to let me do what I need to do. Yeah. And, and it's brilliant. Uh, yeah. So they let me do it.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of support and trust. For sure.
3: Yeah, absolutely right.
2: You know, another super grounding element was the birth of the bromance between Nick Burkhart and Monroe. <gasps> so and, good. you know, that was another very,
0: very tricky relationship. Yeah, what was your first impression of Silas?
3: I immediately loved Silas. I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, man, I like him. He's pretty loud.
0: Silas
2: Ware Mitchell, who plays Monroe.
3: Yeah, I immediately loved that guy. And he somehow seemed to enjoy my company. For a time at least, when it counted. <laughs> but as an actor, oh my God, I don't know if we would have gotten that back nine without a character of Monroe and without Silas Planet. It. it was such a dark show. Yeah,
0: it was very important to have that comedic element, but also just someone who was making it so totally his own. And it was such a unique take on it. Perfect.
3: That is the yeah. marriage of someone who is, uh, he's obviously a great actor. That is. A role for him.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was. It was written for him. There
3: you go. And just like Wu's role was for Wu. A lot of times, it's not about just how good you are. It's like, what is your energy and how do we best harness this energy for this part? He was so good. And I do credit him, especially in the beginning, because it was a heavy, heavy show, adding the levity that allowed people to make it through the next mauling you know, but oh, also,
2: like, because you're a really funny person, David. And I'm
3: exquisitely funny. Thank you.
2: Yes. It's like Chris Rock, Madison Square Garden
3: level. <laughs> I always am compared to Chris Rock in particular. Yeah. Thank you. Marie. Yes,
2: I hear that a lot. <laughs> but, uh, but since both of you as humans are just, like, low-key, naturally funny men, I think, like, that relationship, there was moments created between the two of you that were so necessary for the series, but also... I would imagine, were they unexpected? Just the chemistry between you guys where like you guys could find these really kind of quiet, odd couple type of moments that aren't like laugh out loud funny, but just it's the invisible fabric that really kept a lot of things moving forward from being too Uh, grim.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't met Silas until the show started filming. So I had never seen him act. And when he opened his pie hole there, he was clearly a gifted actor. And what I think is so special about Silas is a lot of guys would have known that I was this like nascent little blob, like still forming as an actor. And he was so humble and so giving with me and kind as a person to me and understanding that, oh, this kid's gonna have a lot on his shoulders. So, like, he was extremely supportive. And again, like the crew members could not help but laugh at some of the things he was doing because he was so brilliant. And then they'd it be cut and he's like, ah. Oh did that suck? Was that terrible? I'm like, dude, (laughs) you are saving me. Thank you. So yeah, he was just truly wonderful to work with for me, David, and as Nick Burkhart is sort of the counterpunch to Nick's kind of woe and seriousness.
0: Now you are shooting season four of ABC's drama, A Million Little Things. Is it weird to be thinking about Grimm again? Do you hear from the Grimm fans a lot on social media or on the street?
3: Grimm's fan base is unlike anything I've experienced since Grimm or before Grimm, without a doubt. I didn't know that I wouldn't be gaining the same amount of followers <laughs> uh, like on Instagram. Like It is Grimm fans, by and large, on Instagram.
1: But don't you also
2: think like the fact that there wasn't really social media, I mean, it was in existence, but it wasn't really dictating our industry as much as it is now?
0: Yeah, things would probably be different if the show was premiering right now.
1: I think as we all get older, if I can speak for all of us, you know, you really start wondering, like, what is the point? What is my legacy? What am I leaving behind? All of these, like, very existential thoughts. And to know that there are people out there who you have meant something very deep to, you know? Because I think of, like, what I watch or stories that I love and characters that I love and, and how how helpful it can be and what a point of connection it is just, you know, in life.
2: Well, especially with with our show because of how connected we were to the community. And because it wasn't Los Angeles, there just was a lot of real face-to-face interaction with people who loved the show and supported it. And I think those are the moments of like, you know what? It's pretty cool what I do. Like I create this thing and it brings people joy, or do they need to escape or forget about their problems and disappear? And I think I've always felt like that's the gold of working in the fantasy genre.
3: Another thing, a big difference between the show I'm on now and Grim, and Bitsy probably feels this too with her show, genre can go international. Grim is a story about justice, monsters, good guys, bad guys. And every human being understands what that looks like, that mythology. And therefore, every country loves it. And that is not the case with other very unique to America's culture dramas or, or procedurals or whatever. And I think it transcends borders. I know Brazil happens to love me. Hello, Brazil. Hi, Brazil. How you doing? Love us and the show. And you can tell you're watching Graham by one frame of that show. It had such an identity. And yet, I have not experienced fans like that again.
2: Also, do you guys feel just, like, where we all were in our lives, too? It was, like, a real sweet spot. Yeah. You know?
0: It was so special, too. Like, my show started during the pandemic, so my cast never had that opportunity to bond in the same way because we were all avoiding each other like the plague. Like, because we had (laughs) been instructed by Warner Brothers really not to hang out unless we were shooting together on set and grim i mean we were together all the time i mean except for david and russell because they were shooting all the time but the rest of us were going out we're in our 30s it was such a special time and also portland was just the best yeah david and i've been talking lately about you know when my show ends down the road like where do we want to be do we want to be in washington do we want to be in la do we want to go back to portland yeah i totally see another chapter for me in portland
3: oh i love that brie yeah
2: I miss it so Mm -hmm. much.
1: And so many people have moved there too.
2: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the shit that people want to know. When did you know
1: you wanted to be married
3: together (laughs) forever? I knew that I was having, uh, there were some rumblings season three.
0: You guys were pros. What did you say once, David, that
2: like you had this lie about the producers, like their worst
0: nightmare? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did not start dating, to clarify, until like well into season three. Yeah, yeah. But it was at some point, maybe the first third was the first time, I think, either of us sort of looking at the other one like,
3: hmm. There was a naughtiness to it, ladies. And everybody wants to hear me say the word naughty. I know. <laughs> but first of all, we were clearly... There was an attraction eventually.
2: But you guys also worked together before, right? Yeah. Yeah,
3: I had a crush on her when we were shooting that movie. We did
0: a movie called Carolyn and Jackie.
3: But yes, it was season three, and the stakes are very high when you start falling for a co star or a colleague of any kind. That's what made it so illicit.
0: They're really like sneaking into each other's trailer. All of a sudden, we're, we have to go run lines in each other's trailers. We hadn't done that in the previous 55 episodes, but now it's very important that we run lines. In each, yeah.
3: Well, it's like, why do people go to speakeasies when it's legal to drink? It's like, you want to feel naughty. You want that feeling back. Yeah. So it was pretty much inevitable at a certain point. Bree, I remember at some point, you're like, you're trying to be so polite. You're like, listen, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm all for it. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> not hiding it. Um, <laughs> I did. I also
0: know Get that David and I thought we were being really secretive and that no one knew and, like, apparently everyone I think yeah. that's
2: where my sister vibes came in. I was like, guys, just, like, don't worry about it because we all know. So just, like, don't worry about it. Just, like, chill out, right? Just chill
3: out. Um, <laughs> it was an unlikely pair. And, like, I think— That was part of the initial attraction. Yeah. Again, though, it's like you're so nervous because you're praying it goes well and everybody can be adults if it doesn't go well and you feel all these eyeballs on you. So when it goes well, you end up having a kid.
2: And tell the fans where you guys got married.
3: We got married on Jim Kauf and Lynn Kauf's ranch in Montana. And that is where all of the Grimm cast would be invited every year. Probably open invitation, frankly, because they're so wonderful. And we got married right there.
0: We got married under the same aspen trees that Jim and Lynn got married
3: under. Technically, I believe our daughter is a tax write-off because of all this, how we met, how we fell in Mm -hmm. love.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's good. (laughs) We have the same CPA. I'll confirm that with him.
3: Perfect. Thank you.
1: Because of the high stakes, when you guys got together, was it for both of you like, oh, this is it. I'm pretty sure this is, we're going to get married. This is going to be a done deal or kind of.
0: David, I'm going to let you
3: take this one. (laughs) Uh, No, I think we were both, like, put on the dock, put in the dinghy a lot of times because we were both nervous about it. I don't think anybody goes into any relationship, or at least I never have. I know you haven't, but it's like, this is the one. We got there, and it has been the greatest relationship of my life, and— Hopefully the last relationship of my life (laughs) if I play my cards, right?
0: Yeah. And also, mind you, like, David was tired. Yeah. You were just tired all the time. So often the only person you would be really hanging out with or having any social interaction with outside of work was me when you got home at 1 a.m. Yeah.
2: And, like, the universe, to get you guys both as leads on your next series. It's both in Vancouver. In Vancouver is like saying
0: bonkers. It's bonkers. It is bonkers. Anyone we tell that to, like, this doesn't happen. Like, other actor friends we have, usually somebody is in one city and the other one's in the other city and it's long distance.
2: Because that's the most stressful part. You know, we all know that.
0: Like, that's the hardest part about what
2: we do is to really build a foundation of, like, your whole life, you know? Not just this element, but, like, your whole life. And especially once you bring kids into it, which you guys have, Can we talk about...
3: Lil Viv? Oh, she's a little slice of perfection. I will say this. If there's a higher power of any kind, they wanted Bitsy and I to get together because I was testing to be her love interest in every show. I was cast in a movie with her. We were on six seasons. We were on the same floor in an apartment complex. My
0: very first show, David had tested to be my love interest. I didn't know that. That's wild. And then there were other times, too. I did an HBO pilot called The Washingtonian. It came down to David and one other guy named David to play my character's love interest. So it just was a matter of when. That's insane.
3: We're a SAG-after family, guys. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, but Vib is Viv's fantastic. Vib's uh, Vancouver, Washington, they're both wonderful cities to raise a kid, you know?
2: You know, because this stuff is hard. I mean, like, it's hard to stay grounded, and it's really awesome.
3: Tatsy you and know, I, I can't believe how fortunate we are to be both working in the same city, but it's funny how human nature is. I somehow managed to be completely dissatisfied. Um, <laughs> but no, we are tremendously fortunate, and I don't think we'll ever lose sight of that.
0: David, yes. we know you have to put Vivian down for a nap. Yes, Thank you so much for joining. We'll definitely have you back. and We definitely also want to have you back to talk about the episode you directed.
3: My wife, my love, thank you. My ladies, thank you so much. Bye, Aww, David. So good
1: to see you.
2: So
3: good to see you, my friends.
1: Thank you so much. Miss you guys.
3: I miss everybody. I can do this all day long.
0: All right, babe, you're on your own. Bye. bye.
3: See you guys. See you. I loved this. Let's do this again. More of this. I'm leaving the room. Quote, unquote. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Love bye. You. bye.
1: David. bye. It still feels like, I know it's been so many years at this point, but it really does feel like we're all still. I was just going
0: to say that. Five years, by the way. David just pointed that out. Five years this month since, since we, we, finished we finished Grim.
2: That's wild. Our
0: last episode.
2: We've all now known each other for a decade. Wow. This year. Yeah. Longer than well, that. Yeah, longer than that. Yeah. for you. Yeah. I've known both of you now for 10 years. Wow. Which yeah. Which is a trip, right? But I know I was going to say the same thing, Claire. Like seeing his face, it's like no time has passed.
1: I was looking back, trying to find the pilot script, and I didn't. I just found reshoots that I had to do of Grimm. And I have it in paper form somewhere, but I couldn't find it in my email drafts folder. And in the reshoot pages, it still had when Juliet was a baker, and she's coming out of her oh bakery God. with croissants so for—, silly.
0: for For Nick. You know I shot that.
1: That was going to be my question. I shot the
0: bakery scene, and I just was kind of like, guys, what am I going to do? Throw muffins at bad guys? Like, this is not useful. Wait,
1: so this scene, Boulangerie Juliette is what it's called. A new French bakery in the old part of downtown Portland, fresh baked goods and coffee. Nick gets out and enters Juliette Anderson. That's interesting. Oh,
0: yeah, we changed it.
1: Serving croissants and coffee to young urban professionals. And then you come out and bring him a bag of pastries. And say we're kicking some early morning butt.
0: Well, I also think I was just talking about Henry so incessantly. They were like, oh, let's make her a vet. And also, this could be handy with Vesson.
1: It's so smart. The vet part, yes. Yeah, but no, the just,
0: bakery thing was perplexing. That
2: is so smart. But it was probably a lot to do with your love affair with your pooch pooch. I know.
0: I, I don't remember why we changed it from Anderson, other than I think Silverton had some meaning behind it that I absolutely should know. Do you think they did it because of Hans Christian Andersen, like they were doing the Brothers Grimm and, you know? Maybe that was the original reason. I just can't remember why we changed it and what the meaning was behind Silverton. That would actually be a good question when we interview Greenie and Kelph, because they might remember. My character's
1: name changed like three or four times. Oh, yeah. It did, like while you were filming or before? It was before. It was between, because when I was cast, it was Miss Schloroffen.
0: That's That's sexy. Which
1: was, I think, based on an actual Grimm's fairy tale character. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like it was Adeline or Adelaide, which is like what people still say, like Adeline, but it's Adeline. Oh, my God, Claire. Do you remember? Who was it? Silas and I laugh about this
2: probably six times a year. (laughs) Alan. 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 Someone was on set and someone was trying to get (laughs) I don't
1: know this is making me laugh so hard.
2: They were trying to say Adeline. Yeah. Alan. (laughs) Alan. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. Like out of nowhere, we'll do that to each other. Like, Alan. (laughs) Half the people on set said Adeline. But her first last name was Adeline Kunst. That's also sexy. You know what? I was geeking out on like locations in Portland when we first see you. You were coming out of that restaurant that was yes. many iterations. Yes. That The first like, one it was shop. when I moved there. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. it had excellent oatmeal.
0: Oh my God, you guys. I just found the casting thing for Juliet. Juliet, Nick's live-in girlfriend, age 26 to 28. She's a bundle of beauty and energy who runs a chic French bakery that caters to the hip crowd. This is from the Breakdown Deeply in love with Nick, Juliet is dismayed by his claims that he has begun seeing deadly creatures among the seemingly ordinary crowd. Mm. She tries to reassure him that his hallucinations are the result of recent stress, but she may soon learn otherwise. Oh, she gonna learn.
1: That's interesting, too. Did he divulge to you? Because in the pilot, he doesn't say that he's seeing creatures.
0: I just got the pilot script. Okay, I I just pulled it up. Claire, you popped up, like, pretty early, right? It's the first-ish scene with Hank, and that was in there or maybe not the end we reshot the end too they had sasha play it with a british accent and then also american oh here it doesn't say your name in the script but it says scene five of the pilot script you're leaving the bakery where i just apparently gave him muffins or whatever this beautiful blonde glances back at Nick, nick sensing something she suddenly morphs into a hideous looking old witch nick is stunned he blinks and just that quickly, the woman is once again herself. That's so good. That's some of my favorite parts of the pilot.
1: But I think that because I didn't audition, the audition scene I had was not in the pilot. They did a full scene where I'm with a cop and then I eventually eat the cop's head at the end of the scene. But like the cop is working for me. But at the end of the scene is I like open my mouth wide and go and and he said.
2: You know what I loved? Because I just watched it, the hospital move where you're like, you morph, right? But then the CGI went away, and I see your mouth, and it made me giggle because I'm like, <laughs> everyone has to just like— Just
1: really ringing it. —look so fucking
2: stupid. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like, yeah. you have to be so— Full commitment i was thinking that too watching silas's morph and your morph
1: because they were definitely different because i remember silas had done his morph before and it was just in the car ride over with mark Buckland, the director who said it's like you're shrugging something on and off oh that's cool i was told like you don't have control of your emotions and so you're trying to regain control i loved it you know i mean it was so
0: ugly right for such a beautiful character. So grotesque, you know, like it's so cool. I was just skimming through one of the scenes with Nick and Juliet, and it has a line with Nick where he goes, I know how this sounds, Julie. I know what you must be thinking. Julie. Never call me Julie. Oh my God. Uh, Not once. That just did not translate. That doesn't work.
1: I still, from the pilot, your line about, it was just a cat. It's just the best, my favorite moment of the entire pilot. (laughs) So Bitsy. Right? It's so bitsy. So bitsy. It's so
2: good. Claire, that's so funny you say that. Cause even your reaction to the trailer when you catch him at night, you just have this wonderful way of like, what the fuck? What's going on? Like, you're totally confident it's all good. And so, like, when you come to the trailer, you're like, hmm, all right, moving on.
1: Like, it's like, and yeah, and it's their entire relationship. That is, if I may, part of your genius acting of that moment is that you understand your and Nick's relationship. In that, just one line. Totally. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I couldn't
2: agree more. Because also, like reading that breakdown, there's so many, dare I say, like obvious ways someone could approach this character, you know? And your innate intelligence and confidence, and just like you're a cool gal. There's no damsel in distress with Itsy Tolik, and nor was there with Juliet Silverschlag or whatever her name was in the beginning. <laughs>
0: Oh, by the way, I pulled it up again, the breakdown, just because it's kind of hilarious. It was Eddie Monroe, which stayed, Hank Green, so that changed, and for Renard, Captain Erickson. Oh, wow. Interesting. Oh, wait, so actually, I guess they must have theoretically, like, auditioned other people for Silas's role, because he is on the breakdown. Yeah, I'm sure. Do you guys want me to read the breakdown for Nick? Yeah. Yeah. Nick Burkhart, aged 28 to 32, he's a handsome young detective who has a beautiful girlfriend, a solid job, and the world on a string. Lately, however, Nick has been seeing some pretty strange things, ordinary people morphing into witches, owls, etc., that make him fear he is doubting his sanity. While defending his mysterious Aunt Marie from a troll-like attacker, Nick begins to realize the truth, that he's an individual who can see the creatures among us that no one else can It's part of his generational heritage, one that he can never escape, try as he might. Now, this cop finds himself battling deadly creatures right out of the darkest fairy tales, and those creatures are vengeful types with very long memories who would like nothing more than to eliminate Nick permanently just as soon as they get the chance. Jeez, that sounds like a very dangerous position. So, by the way, this is just the pilot. This is like well before we got picked up, and I'll read you the summary. The original storyline for Grimm— When did I get this email? February 18th, 2011. Oh, my God. Storyline for Grimm. So long ago. Nick Burkhart, a young police officer, is perturbed when he starts seeing fleeting visions of ordinary people turning into monsters. Nick fears he's going nuts until he learns that he is inexorably transforming into a Grimm, as did all his ancestors before him. As a Grimm, he sees things that other people can't, including evil creatures straight out of the darkest fairy tale, and as a grim, Nick must battle the forces of evil, even at grave and ever-present risk to his own life. I'd watch that show.
1: Oh, I remember it had a lot of heat as a pilot. Because every pilot season, there are a few that everybody wants to get on and feels like, oh, this is the cool one. And it definitely was that.
2: That level of darkness, too, I think is a big part of why I was attracted to it. Because it's this conflict of discomfort, but it's kind of funny. You know, like, it's the intangible element of the show of why it works. But I think a lot of it is because it didn't take itself so seriously. Yeah. There's a levity to the gore.
1: Grim, there's a levity to the (laughs) gore. Tune back in for our next episode two, which we will be discussing Bears Will Be Bears. You can subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode at apple.co slash
0: grimcast. To leave us a message, go to the show notes and click on the link there. Ask us anything
2: to be continued.